Well, good evening, Mosaic. If you'll come and worship with us, stand and sing. We have a song that we sang last week that was written here at Fellowship, and would you worship Jesus with us?
Mosaic. My name is Audrey. I am a student ministry resident for Mosaic this year, and it has been so much fun to get to know the students who are part of Mosaic and who I knew whenever I was in high school and have now gotten to see them coming to know the Lord and desiring God as their foundation and as their life, and it's just been beautiful. Um, Last week, we talked about a prayer pause, and we took a moment to sit and acknowledge God as our Father, not just as a Father of what we think of our earthly Father, but as a good Father who is faithful and just and wonderful. And it's really easy to sit in service and hear and acknowledge God as our Father, but then forget as we leave this place and forget to talk to him and to be with him. And Mark reminded us that God is inviting us into a deeper relationship with him through prayer. And so I hope that we can take it from outside of these doors and really be able to connect with the Lord through prayer and asking him, what do you want, God? What are you pouring out to me? And then also, if you are new, we would love to get you connected. There are people in the foyer who are in the welcome booth, and they would love to meet you, as well as there are links on the screen of how to get connected and stay connected, as well as a way to give online. Um, I am so excited for next service because one of my dear friends, Grace Milliken, is getting baptized, and she is just so on fire for the Lord and desires to profess who God is and say, I want to follow him for the rest of my life. And I think that is an opportunity that we always need to celebrate. We always get to come alongside and just be her champion because She has professed God as her Lord, and so I am really pumped for that. I'm so excited, but would you guys join me in prayer for her? God, I thank you for grace. Thank you for what you have done in her life, and that you have changed your heart and transformed her heart to look more like you. And God, I ask that as you you are guiding her, God, would you reveal to her more deeply who you are and your love for her that is unimaginable. God, we thank you for new life in Christ. Thank you that you transform us from our old sinful self. And you say, I have redeemed you and you are mine. I've called you out of the depths in your mind. So, Lord, thank you for new life. I love you, Lord. Yes, Lord, thank you for new life. Church, as we continue to worship, would you stand with us?
we pray our prayer of repentance and confession to Jesus as he leads us.
continue to worship. We're gonna prepare our hearts to take offering tonight. I just wanna propose a question as you pray through this prayer. What is the love of God to you? How has God loved you through your life? It's a said, steadfast, faithful love. Maybe you can recount and ask the Spirit to bring some things to mind where God has truly loved you and been faithful in that. And as you maybe process that, would you just take a moment, prepare your hearts to read through this prayer that we've put together as a staff to prepare your hearts for offering.
moment. Maybe recall what came to mind when you were processing what you were thankful for, for God's love. Would you just say a prayer of gratitude towards him? Thank you, Jesus, for your love in my life. And I'd love to sing this chorus one more time. Your love never let me go, never let me go. Your goodness is steadfast love, never lets me go, you never let me go. Your goodness is steadfast. Father, we love you. Simple words, but we do proclaim that as a church, God that your faithful love will endure through all the ages, and that's not a small thing. Spirit, would you prepare our hearts to hear from your word, the truth. Lord, let it be our compass, our guide as we go. We love you, God, and we pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. You can take a seat. It's hard to find better words to, to capture the entire message of the book of Ruth, that God's love never lets us, the, lets us go. It's steadfast and it holds on. I'm excited to dive into Ruth 4 with you tonight. Um, hey, I'm Nick, and I get to serve on the teaching team here at Fellowship Mosaic here in Rogers. I um, want to give you all a couple of updates of some things that are going on. One really big one uh, that we just want to let you know about. Some of you probably got an email about it. We've been praying toward and looking forward to opening the Fellowship Bentonville campus on February, uh, February 27th. And we don't have a certificate to get in the building yet. So... Uh, we're going to have to back that date up just a little bit, and we'll let you know as soon as we, can, as soon as we know on when that comes. But here's the big thing I would say, um, and this is not just like marketing spin or trying to find language. Um, Fellowship Bentonville already exists. Um, as a congregation, we are not a building. The church is not a building. It's a people who gather to know God and know each other well. So Fellowship Bentonville, um, it is already happening. It is here, and we're just excited for that building to open, to have a, an expression of our church um, in Bentonville. So be praying toward that and for all the, the wisdom and timing that God has for uh, when that campus will open. We'll let you know as soon as we get all the, the final confirmation on that stuff. And one other thing I want to talk about, and it uh, will set up a little bit of our time tonight, I, I try to keep my, like, Nick rants to a minimum, but I'm going to have a Nick rant for a minute. Um, hey, one of the things that I am increasingly passionate about is the need for Bible teachers in local churches. Um, one of the coolest blessings that we have had in the last several years is access to an incredible amount of information on these devices. Yes? Like, we have access to more quality Bible teaching than any humans in the, on the, in the history of earth have had sitting in our pockets. And that comes with a huge danger. And, and the danger is, is that we would learn to only receive the word of God through a digital voice coming from a person we've never met. And who does not know us? And increasingly, um, I, I am feeling a, a pastoral concern as I'm hearing more and more people who are able to quote their favorite teacher via a YouTube channel, a podcast, a blog, than they are able to quote the word of God. 
And so that is why I, and all those resources are great. I use them. I look to them and I get wisdom from them. And at the same time, God's word is not meant to merely inform us. It is meant to transform us. And the transformation that comes from God's word happens in community. It happens in relationship and in accountability where the person who's teaching you also knows you. And you get to walk life together. I can watch all of the YouTube videos about woodworking I want. And until I go in the garage and put my hands to work, they don't do anything. It's just, it's a cool thing to watch until I do something with it. The garage where we work out our faith is community with other people in the local church. And so that's one of the reasons I am so thankful for Melissa Church and what she does, teaching the Bible week in, week out, um, shaping our people in the word of God. And so I asked her to come back and help us walk through Ruth some more tonight. So thanks for being here. We're Thanks really, really glad me. to have you. Yeah, oh, so good to have you. So what we're gonna do, it's gonna look a little bit different than our normal, like just 30 minute, you know, talk and preach. We're gonna try to, in addition to learning about Ruth chapter four, we're also gonna learn how to learn, how we study our Bibles as we walk through it together. So we're gonna walk through Ruth um, chapter four, verses one to 12. But before we do, would you just give us a recap on what's happened up to this point in the story? Yep. And you can follow along if you've got your Bibles. We're going to move quickly, but it'll take five minutes or so, I guess. So um, we saw in chapter one, um, Ruth makes a covenant to Naomi and the destitute widows return from Moab to Bethlehem because the Lord has visited his people there and has provided food. They're going back for the provision of food. And Ruth's covenant to Naomi um, is really the result of her faith in Jehovah and her desperation for Jehovah and that connection to stay connected to Jehovah through Naomi. But that commitment costs her everything. She leaves everything behind and faces a really uncertain uh, future ahead in in Bethlehem with Naomi. But we see uh, her, the reason for that commitment, we see that confirmed as we move into chapter two and verses 11 and 12 where after Ruth's chance, chances upon Boaz's field, um, this honorable and godly man recognizes the reason behind Ruth's faithfulness to Naomi is her, um, that she has come under the wings of Jehovah. Um, and so Boaz uh, gives her a place in his field and protects her as she works, but offers many other benefits that w- go beyond what's typical. Um, she pro- Boaz provides for Ruth abundantly, and she always has more than she needs, and that's intentional on his part that she will always have something to take home to um, Naomi. That's, it's meant to, to be that. And so Naomi, um, after that first day, recognizes uh, Boaz as one of the kinsmen redeemers who can rescue them from their, their plight of poverty, but she doesn't act on that immediately. And so... Um, at chapter 2, 23, we see the harvest is about to come to an end, which means the provision for the widows will also be coming to an end. And at this point, Ruth has worked in the field from Passover to uh, the Feast of first fruits, which is about 50 days. And then in chapter 3, because they're about to lose that provision, Naomi hatches this plan Um, And if you remember from chapter one, we talked about how Naomi is kind of a model of her times. She's a model of self-effort. 
And so she hatches this plan of self-effort to secure a husband for Ruth, but it's really a, a husband for Ruth and for her um, that they would have a provider, someone to take care of them in their, in their poverty. It's, she's looking for the rest that she told Ruth and Orpah she couldn't provide for them. So um, Naomi becomes for Ruth what Paul calls, and Gentiles, what Paul calls the law. Um, she becomes a tutor for Ruth um, in this little plan that she's making, but she's a poor one. Um, even though the law was meant to bring us to the Redeemer, in that way Naomi does that, but she doesn't do it especially honorably. And she, uh, she really puts Ruth in a vulnerable position. Um, Ruth is really... Um, innocent in this whole in this whole thing, she's acting obediently. But um, Naomi tells her to wash herself, perfume herself, put on her best dress, um, and then wait until uh, Boaz is well in his cups, so to speak, well fed and um, well into his wine, and then uh, uh, to do all of this to herself before she approaches the Redeemer. So Ruth, acting innocently, follows um, obediently what her tutor tells her to do, and she comes to the threshing floor completely empty-handed, except for this tiny bit of the law that she understands at this point that Naomi is really using as she sees fit, just like a person of her time. So Ruth humbles herself at the feet of um, her master in submission and need, and she asks him to cover her with his wings, and that's the same expression that was used to describe how she came under Jehovah. Um, and Boaz, being a man of standing, does not violate her trust or her vulnerability. He blesses her for not pursuing other husbands. And that's not really what you would think that it means there. Really what he's saying is that if Ruth had gone after a younger man a, a more wealthy man, probably not many more wealthy than Boaz would have been, but someone outside of the family could have redeemed Ruth, um, but then Naomi would have been left alone and without a provider. So here again, we see Ruth's hesed toward Naomi in sacrificing her own happiness for the sake of taking care of Naomi by marrying this older man who's also a kinsman redeemer. So um, Boaz recognizes Ruth has said toward her mother-in-law here and calls her also a woman of high ill, as he was described earlier. He lets her stay at the threshing floor there in safety, but he sends her away before her reputation is ruined, before anybody's up the next morning. He sends her home to Naomi with a huge deposit, a huge um, kind of a bride price. And again, that's meant to go to Naomi, and it's meant to secure um, his promise to redeem. And so now the Redeemer goes to secure his bride. Mm. That was one of the things I just, when you, we were talking through this week, I, I appreciated so much just the insight that you brought in, both of, of Ruth not knowing the law. She, she hasn't grown up under Moses's, the, the, the teaching of the Mosaic law. So she is fully vulnerable to Naomi, telling her this is how it's done in Israel. And Naomi puts her in, Probably her conniving way puts Ruth in a really vulnerable situation. You talked about just the safety that mm -hmm. Boaz brought by being, being a man of integrity, and uh, and what that meant, what that would have meant. And I just I appreciated those 
those insights and, and helping to see kind of what all what all is going on at this point. As we're still waiting for Naomi's character uh, to to go through the redemption and, and the change. So yeah, so that's where we come at uh, Ruth chapter four verse one. And so at the end of chapter three, Boaz says, "I'm going to take care of this." And that's where we leave off, and we come to Ruth chapter one, verse one, and this is what we read. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. So he said in the last time, hey, I'm eligible to redeem you, but there's someone else who's actually closer in line, so I'm going to go find him. And so they come to this place called uh, the town gate. Melissa, tell us about that town gate. What's what's going on there? So the town gate was kind of gossip central. Um, It served as the city's meeting place. It's where all the commerce came in and went out. All the trade happened there or at least passed through that that major area. Um, Prophetic messages were given there. Um, Public announcements were made there. It was a civic forum um, for arguments and um, speeches. It was kind of the kitchen, um, if you'll have it, of the city. It's just the heart of the city where everybody gathered to to exchange information. Think of it as like um, where you would pick up your local newspaper for the day or your nightly news. And Boaz knows that the kinsman is going to be there. He's either going to come in or go out doing his business that day, so he plans to, to go and, and to wait there. Um, and because of all that transpires in the city gate, um, Boaz is there to secure witnesses for this transaction that he's about to make to secure the bride. Um, and, and in doing that, he's really showing integrity toward the other kinsmen because he knows he has the first right to refuse. And so rather than having taken Ruth as his own and kind of bucking the system, he's, he's giving up that um, first right to the kinsmen, the other kinsmen. So there's a lot of like when we talk about this idea of the kinsman redeemer and redemption and all that fun stuff, there's, there are some things going on here that culturally don't connect for us. And so I want to talk just a little bit about what, what is this arrangement that's going on? What, what is the system that's in place uh, that Boaz is stepping into here? And it's, it's really fascinating when we look at what God put in place in his law to protect vulnerable people. Um, what, The Mosaic Law, when I say Mosaic Law, what I mean is the first five books of our Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And these are kind of the constitution, if you will, of ancient Israel. It told them everything they need to know about their history, their story, and what day-to-day life was supposed to look like. And in the Mosaic Law, it had provisions for what, they have the equivalent of bankruptcy law. They have what's going to happen when you get into financial trouble, when terrible things happen to you. And Israel had their own social safety net, a system of how to take care of people when bad things happen. And there were several different levels to that. So I'll try to make this brief. I could like spend about four hours talking about this because I just think it's really cool and I get nerdy about that stuff. So we'll try to be somewhat concise here. But essentially, there's a few things going on that's some background that's helpful to know. In the, we studied Joshua a little bit ago. When they got into the land and God gave them the land of Israel, God divided all the land up by tribe. And so they knew, that's one of the reasons, you know, you ever, anybody uh, stumble in their Bible reading when they get to the long list of ancestors and where everyone came from, right? Okay, here's why that mattered. They kept a list of records because your family descendants were supposed to have the same piece of land forever. That was a way of providing for all of Israel. The land was the source of wealth and income. And so what happened is, 
During a 49-year period, people could buy and sell land, gain wealth, but every 50 years, everything reset. Can you imagine this? All debts canceled, and all of the wealth of the land was redistributed based on the original family allotment. That was a way to make sure that wealth didn't pile up with one family and people end up in generational poverty. They had a reset every 50 years. But there's an interesting question. What if a line gets cut off? Meaning, a man dies married before he's able to have a descendant. And you have a a widow without a male descendant, anyone to take care of her. If you're a woman in this period, um, in, in this culture, you had a man who was supposed to provide for you. Um, And I'm not commenting on anything having to do with patriarchy and those kind of social issues here. This is what was happening in Israel, okay? And so it started as your father, and then it became your husband, and then later it became your son. Well, their rule was, if a woman became widowed, the nearest male relative, typically a brother, would marry her. Now, my guess is most of the women in here, when you think about something happened to your husband, your brother-in-law is probably not your first pick. Um, now, but let's try to understand what's going on here in the culture. Um, if something, in, in our culture, if something happens to me, we have life insurance. That's our plan, right? For taking care of family if something happens. This was their plan to make sure that if something happened when a family wasn't stable and secure enough financially to take care of themselves, that a woman would be taken care of. And it made perfect sense that that was your family responsibility, was that you would marry in the family and you would now have a son that would fill in the line of descendants in the land so that every 50 years when the land got redistributed, your line is not wiped out from Israel's history. And so there was that tradition going on, but there's also a redeemer, the, the kinsman redeemer would buy the land. If you ever got into so much financial trouble that you're gonna lose the land, which would be your only source of income, your source of working the land, the idea is that one of your family members, instead of letting it get sold outside the family so you're completely out on your own, a family member had the first right to buy the land to try to keep the land in the family and keep providing for you. So these are all rules that are set up in Israel to try to protect people who get in vulnerable situations. And every village, every town knew you play by these rules. And so these are all the kind of cultural things that we read about in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you know, the chapters that kill our Bible reading plans. It's all there in Leviticus and Deuteronomy that explains what's going on here in Ruth. And so those are some of the rules that are going on in the background that make this, what seems at first like a really cryptic little legal proceeding at the gate, make a little bit more sense. So you want to read on in verse 1 and, and, and take us on from here? Yep. So 1B, Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. So we have a, a funny translation thing here happening in the NIV. Um, the, <laughs> people struggle with figuring out how to translate this word exactly. Um, it's a funny little rhyming word, kind of like our word hodgepodge in English, um, that has essentially no meaning. And it's used in other places whenever you're pointing to something that has no name. So you might say, hey, go to such and such place and do this. So the NIV translates it as my friend because they're just trying to say this person over here. But the net, I think, captures, the New English translation catches it really well. It says, hey, come over here. What's your name? Now, this is Boaz's relative. In context, Boaz knew his name. But the storyteller chose not to record this other redeemer's name. The name is left out, and it's filled in with this little placeholder Uh, what's his name? 
what, what's going on here? Like, why, why do we get what's his name in the so story? My favorite translation is it's Mr. So-and-so. Yep. Um, in, in reading a narrative, um, there are just, there are some simple principles to reading narrative. And one of the things is that the author is intentional and selective when he tells the story. That doesn't mean that he's, these aren't real people. It's just that the author is writing this story so that he can communicate a particular message. So he's selective in this. And, and we know, we come to know characters by what they say in the story, what they do in the story, or what other people say about them, just like we've seen about Ruth, Boaz, and Naomi. But in this case, there's absolutely nothing said about this man. He's not even named. And so the author's communicating to us that he really has no place in this story at all. He is completely forgettable. And he, he makes a perfect foil or a contrast to Boaz, who is then remembered in perpetuity for his hesed and for his yeah. redemption. That's good. So keep that idea of the name in the back of your mind and someone who ends up nameless in the story. So in verse 2, we read, Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town and said, sit here. And they did so. Okay, so um, tell us a little bit what's going on here, what's what's happening at this point. So elders are are there as witnesses, and um, the elders in the city are are chosen basically to adjudicate the the transaction that he's making. Um, But we also see a little bit later that the people are there too as witnesses. And again, I've got to keep my rants to a minimum here, but there, there's so many cultural commentaries we should, we, I would love to put in here. Um, in ancient Israel, they had the concept of retirement. You would reach an age where you weren't physically able to go out and work the fields anymore. And you know what would happen at that point? You had a social responsibility in the village that you would come and sit at the town gate every day. You'd be called an elder, which meant you were older and you had respected character. They didn't have courts they didn't have police, and they didn't have lawyers. So when you had a dispute, guess who took care of it? The elders. That was now your responsibility for the village, was that you were the one to weigh in on these things, which meant the people of the village respected age and wisdom. When there was a problem that they needed someone to sort out, they would bring it to the elders. That was the elders' communal responsibility, was to sit at the gate and be available to work these things out. So Boaz knows they're going to be there. And these are the people uh, he turns to. So verse 3. Then he, uh, Boaz, said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will do it, if you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. So where has this land been all this time? Right? Hasn't come up in three chapters. Right. So, you know, it begs the question. We're we're surprised, for one thing, but then also, are Ruth and Naomi living on it? And are they prospering by it? And does that, um, does that disqualify them from gleaning? Because there were certain rules about who could glean. And if they were actually not needy and in poverty, then they wouldn't, Ruth wouldn't have been allowed to glean. So it's a little confusing, um, the sudden um, mention of the land. But it must be important because if you, if you look at those two verses, that word redeemed in the original language is used six times. So it's... 
the Guardian Redeemer, and where it says, uh, we suggest that you'll buy it, uh, redeem it, to do so, to, to, um, to do it. Anyway, all of those words in the original language mean the same thing, which mean to redeem. So we know that, that it's a significant thing yeah. to, to be redeeming the land here. And so this is that concept we talked about earlier, that whenever you fall into financial trouble, something like our bankruptcy, the family member has the first right to redeem that land and take care of the family. Now, at this point, this looks like a really, really good deal for Mr. What's-His-Name. And here's why. Remember that whole thing about every 50 years, any land that's been bought and sold goes back to the original owner? Well, what has happened to Elimelech's line? It's dying out. It's gone. So he's about to get this land for a really good deal, but any other land he would buy in Israel, he would only have until the next year of Jubilee, that next 50-year mark. So it's, it's almost like renting the land. He's gonna pay for a few years to have it, and then when the next Jubilee comes up, he has to give it back to whoever it belongs to. But he realizes, wait a minute, Elimelech died? Both of his sons died? There's no heir for this land? So... I can buy it and have no one to have to give it back to, which means I can double my family inheritance. This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for good old Mr. What's-His-Name. So he's, he jumps right on it. But then um, there's a little surprise coming for What's-His-Name. Yep. I'm going to read verse 5. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it for yourself. I cannot do it. So that expression on the day um, seems important here. A good Bible study practice would tell us we need to note the timing um, and pay attention to what that tells us. And also that expression in order to, I think we talked last time about the therefore and so that yeah. we, those kinds of expressions give us a lot of information. So on the day in order to really seems to link the widow and the land together. And it kind of puts a ticking clock on the exchange because the whole point is you've got to raise up an heir for that land. And so um, if the heir wasn't an issue, the other kinsman really could have sat on his right to redeem that forever. And he could have prevented anyone else from redeeming it too. And so it just would have, would have kind of sat. But now the, the, the heir issue has been raised and that creates an urgency um, in redeeming it. But doesn't that also, isn't that also the problem? It is absolutely the problem. And this really, once again, the cultural factors influence so much reading what's happening in the story. Because originally, what's his name thinks he's got a deal that financially benefits him in an incredible way. But what he finds out is because Ruth the younger widow is still alive, another law of Moses kicks in here. And it's the law to marry this young widow and provide an heir for the other line, which means he now has to split his inheritance in half. One to Ruth's line and the other to whoever else he has. So he just realized that instead of a deal that's gonna financially benefit him, this is actually a deal that is financially gonna drain him. He's now gonna care for the older Naomi and for Ruth, 
and split his family inheritance. So what looked like a financial boon for him becomes a financial bust, and he says, I'm out. And this is the key character moment that's really driving um, what's happening in the story. So then we get to an interesting little tradition in verse 7. So now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. So in reading narrative, this is another one of those um, little, th- little, little tricks in Bible study. This is an aside. It's a parenthetical phrase. There are parentheses around that, so you know that it's kind of set aside, set apart from the story. But what, what it tells us is something really important, that um, it, it kind of narrows down the timing of when Ruth is written. It gives us some historical hints to that timing because the author is explaining this tradition to people who don't understand it, apparently. So we know it's not so long ago, but it's a little closer to us. Um, So it's just an interesting little tidbit of of Bible trivia. Yeah, because it's also going to help us understand that the author has a further down the road perspective. That's going to come in really big next week. Um, but you know, when you get something like this, I mean, it, we can pass over it. But that explanation, um, you think about it, if I'm writing a story today and I talk about going to the grocery store, I don't, tell, I don't have to tell someone in the narrative, hey, by the way, we have this thing we do at the grocery store where when it comes time to pay, we have these little rectangular pieces of plastic with a strip on them. And you take the plastic out and you run it through a machine. And I don't have to explain that to a bunch of people that know what a credit card is, Right. So if you see an explanation like that, you know the audience is people who don't know what's going on here. They're from a different time. So yeah, that clues us into a little bit of what's going on. And we get a, an interesting thing here with the taking off of sandals. And, uh, and this was a way of expressing a transaction is happening. And there's a lot of background on what's going on with the sandal thing here. Um, it could mean, hey, you can walk in my shoes. What, where I walk is now yours to walk. Um, when you read about back in Abraham, when he first comes to Israel, it talks about everywhere he places his foot will be his. And so there's some exchange here going on that's showing an exchange of property. Even if we don't totally understand, I mean, there's a lot of customs we have today. I have no idea. I don't know why I shake someone's hand to say hi. But this, these customs have developed over time. And this custom was a way of saying, we're trading property. And that leads us into verse 9. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 9. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilian, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today, you are my witnesses. Okay, so this is our, our big summary statement, and it brings it home. What all do we see here? Yeah, so the important thing, uh, most important thing, I think, to notice here is, again, the repetition. They're witnesses. They're elders. It's all the people. It emphasizes the public nature of what's taking place in this exchange. Um, and if the book of Ruth is a book of contrasts, and it is, then this is a contrast directly with what happened in chapter 3, So it's a contrast between working and waiting, Naomi working to secure this transaction that God has really already provided for, and waiting, you know, which is what Ruth is doing now. She's at home with that deposit, waiting for Boaz to go and work this out on her behalf. Um, But the real thing here is that Boaz is redeeming Ruth 
in full daylight, um, in public, before the elders, before the townspeople, with witnesses. There's no secret, there's no shame. He's totally sober. He's being honest, he's showing integrity. He knows exactly what he's redeeming. He knows who he's redeeming. He knows why he's redeeming, and he knows what it will cost him. And that's all very high contrast to what took place at the threshing floor in chapter three. So um, we see here Boaz is fully willing and able to redeem, and, um, and so he does. And that idea of cost is crucial to the story. At what cost will Boaz be loyal? At what cost will his loving kindness stay with Ruth? And he recognizes the cost. That's one of the key ideas of redemption is redemption comes at a cost. And we're getting a contrast between somebody who is willing to pay the cost and somebody who is not. And we close out the story in verse 11. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. And so the, the blessing of fruitfulness here echoes the first purpose of man and woman all the way back in the garden, to be fruitful and multiply. And it's such a privilege. And the, the mention of the women here is really, is really important. Rachel and Leah, you know, I started to say single-handedly, but between the two of them, you know, they fought for the opportunity to build up the family of Israel. They're, they're fully responsible for that. So the women play a crucial role um, in that. And then the story of Tamar um, is one you can read on your own, a little scandalous, but she, she understood the importance of it, the significance of, of um, maintaining that family line uh, to the point that she manipulated and tricked in order to do that, and still she was called a righteous woman for it. Um, and now Ruth uh, gets to continue uh, that particular line. So we went from Israel to Judah and now to this specific family within Judah um, leading directly to Messiah. So the blessing continues um, the theme of Hayel or standing. That she takes her place in that. And notice the significance of taking a Gentile foreign woman and saying, may you be like the great matriarchs of Israel. There is no greater statement of inclusion. There is no greater statement of place and standing she could have in Israel than saying, may you be like Rachel and Leah. Um, this is an incredible statement that, um, and even a, a little foreshadowing of what is to come for the church, that the Gentiles, that the non-Jewish people would be brought into the family with the full rights that come from our father Abraham. Um, you know, some people have asked, this is actually a really shameful teaching in the history of the Western church, um, because in the Old Testament, they were taught not to marry foreign women. And so that led to some people saying, oh, the Bible forbids interracial marriage. Um, you got to square that with what's happening with Ruth here mm -hmm. and what happens with Rahab in, in uh, the book of Joshua. If you read the full context when it says don't marry foreign women, it says because they will bring their foreign gods with them. It had nothing to do with nationality or ethnicity. It had to do with faith. It had to do with who they worship. And notice back in chapter one, what commitment did Ruth make? 
I will go with you, your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. So the standard here for inclusion, what we're seeing, we're seeing a hint of it here in Ruth, faith in Yahweh is gonna blast down every national boundary, every ethnic boundary there is, as our faith in the one true God bridges all of these boundaries. And I also love that, that here we get the story of, uh, in so many ways, it would seem like a really insignificant story. You'd be tempted to go, yeah, this is just one born woman coming in and being a part of Israel. And yet we're gonna see next week, giving lots of nods next week, the significance in the larger story that God's gonna use uh, this one woman in and, the, and the, the way that God has a habit, I would even say a joy in taking rather insignificant people and doing rather significant things through them. I read a great book earlier this year called Sisters of the Spirit um, by William Andrews. It's three autobiographies uh, collected together of African-American women in the 19th century who were evangelists from the North who would sneak down into the slave states to tell enslaved peoples about the gospel um, and just the incredible impact uh, these women had. And we see God loves to use people even in really vulnerable situations in powerful ways. So bringing this to a close and trying to make sense as how this brings the story home, we're seeing a contrast, a, a repeat that's happening that matches from chapter one. Remember in chapter one, we had Naomi in a vulnerable situation and two people with the opportunity to show loyalty, Ruth and Orpah. Both recognizing the great cost, Orpah walked away, Ruth was faithful. Now, again, Ruth is in the vulnerable situation. Two people with an opportunity to show faithfulness. What's-his-name walks away and gets forgotten from the story. Boaz stays faithful. And one of the interesting things about stories is we have a lot of work to figure out, like, what do we do with this? How does this play out in our lives? And one of my favorite Old Testament scholars says, any story we have in the Old Testament usually works at three different levels. There's always gonna be a communal level in Israel. What did this mean for Israel communally and how might we model it? And, and at the first level, we see that God designed people to love generously and protect the vulnerable. Everyone in Israel would have read this story and known that's how we're supposed to live. And it would apply the same to us as well. That we should be a people like the Good Samaritan that we see someone in a vulnerable place leverages our resources even at great cost. But this story was, would have been operating at a much higher level as well. Because as you told us in week one, in chapter one, this is in a season when Israel has been rebelling against God. They've not been faithful to Yahweh. And so this story about the cost of faithfulness, about sticking to someone in a covenant love even when it hurts and even at great cost to yourself, should be reminding Israel about how their God has been faithful to them and calling them to faithfulness. But at a third level, this story is also a part of a bigger story. This story is laying the groundwork for a redeemer who is coming. It's laying the groundwork for someone who is gonna show covenant faithfulness and redeem us at the highest cost. We see a reference to that in Ephesians chapter one, verses seven and eight. It says, in him, we have redemption through his blood, 
the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Even in this seemingly everyday story, it's pointing us to the generosity and the covenant faithful love of our Redeemer. Would you pray for us? Yes. Lord Jesus, our Redeemer, every one of us approaches you in need, whether for salvation or for daily bread. And Lord, you supply abundantly, more so than we even know to ask or imagine that you will because we know we're unworthy. But you accept us, even so, and by your own good pleasure and will, you make us your own at your own expense. And you give us rest from our constant striving. We come, Lord, with nothing absolutely nothing, empty-handed. But we stand asking and trusting that through your loving kindness, you will meet our every need in Christ. So tonight, Lord, fill our hearts with joy. Humble us at your feet, knowing that we're completely safe in our vulnerability, no matter what our need. We praise you and thank you, Lord. Amen. Church, would you stand and worship with us? We get to see of a God who is better than anything we can imagine. He knows us. He wants to know us more wants relationship with us. So would you lift your voice as we sing? There's no other. There is no other so sure instead my hope is held in your hand. When castles crumble and breath is flee upon this rock I rock
pray this with us, lift your voice. In every victory, Jesus is better. Make my heart believe more than any comfort we know.
proclaim that as a church, Father, a body of believers, the people of God, Lord, just worshiping you, that you are the Lord, our God. Father, help us to trust that you love us unconditionally. Lord, it's a steadfast kind of love. So help us to trust that, believe it, to share it, to own it, that we are made in your image. Therefore, we're loved by you, Father. Spirit, would you keep in, help us keep in step with you as we prepare our hearts to leave this building and to go into the world. We love you, Jesus. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, hey, church, if you need prayer, we have some members of our prayer team that'll be on the walls. They'll be wearing white badges. Um, if not, let's, let's say this as we prepare our hearts to go. Fiddle. Yeah, there we go. Let us go in peace to love and serve the Lord. And the people said, thanks be to God. See you next week, church.